Are you ready for some goodness? Yes. Amen. <laughs> We're going to do some reading before we get started tonight. We got a lot of scriptures to go through, but I believe you're going to love it because what is better than the word of God? Amen. Let's turn to John chapter 6. Thank you, Lord. We'll start in verse 5. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. When I was reading this story, I don't know, a few weeks ago, it, the Holy Spirit quickened another story to me. So we're going to go to another story. Turn to Judges chapter 6. We'll start in verse 2. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves dens, caves, and strongholds, which are in the mountains. So it was whenever Israel had sown, like their fields, the Midianites would come up, also Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. And then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So you get the picture, right? So they would plant, the harvest would come, and then their enemies would come and take all the crops so that they would be poor, impoverished, have nothing to eat, you know, so they wouldn't be sustained. So Israel, verse 6, was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also, I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. So let me just pause and just like, let's just take a little bit of time here. So all this bad stuff is happening to God's people. God's people. Bad things are happening to God's people. Right? So they cry out to God and he sends them a man of God to tell them why this is happening. And he says, and he reminds them who he is and what he's capable of. Because apparently they forgot. Can you relate? (laughs) I know we can, right? And then he says to you, he said in verse 10, I am the Lord, your God. He has to remind them, I'm the Lord, your God. No one else, I am. 
And he says this, do not fear the gods of the Amorites. Well, you would think that that word fear is like be afraid of, but it's not. It's the same fear word we've been hearing on Sundays. To be in awe of. To revere and to worship. So they were revering those gods more than they were their God. And God's saying, I'm your God. I'm your God. I did all these things. I'm your God. All right, let's pick up the story. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under a terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. I think it's very interesting. So I'm going to pause on verse 11 because, you know, usually I don't read those names because, like, it's kind of hard, you know? <laughs> You're like, I don't even know how to pronounce that. But let me just, while I, when I was reading this, I just wanted to know, okay, these are tough words, so what do these words mean? So I found it interesting that Joash, Gideon's dad's name, means given by the Lord. The Abiezrite, that term actually means my father is help. So it's, it's significant. That's why it's in here. Right? It's like reminders that God gives people to us, right? And they, and they should remind us that God is help, right? He's our help. And then the, the word Midianites actually means strife, which I thought was interesting too. So just a little tidbit, nothing to do with the message, but strife is destructive. <laughs> and the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, oh, my Lord. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Which, did God forsake them or did they forsake God? Let's just get it right right now. Okay. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might. It's like he didn't even hear him. Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So the story, I don't want to read every verse, because... We're going to move on. But let me just tell you how the story goes. So right after this, Gideon brings an offering to God. He lays it out. Fire comes up out of a rock, consumes the offering. There's miracles that he was asking for, right? And then he names the place Jehovah Shalom, like a new name of God. Jehovah, my peace, my wholeness, my wellness, right? And then he, and then in the same night that, the, that he's got done this offering and that God's appeared to him, he tells Gideon, I want you to go and I want you to tear down the, let me take your, it says, tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. This is verse 25. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and then take the bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So he's taking down the, you know, the altar to Baal and he's burning it. But remember, all these people Revere it, fear it, are in awe of these gods, right? So Gideon takes 10 men from his servants, and he does just what the Lord says to do. 
But because he was so fearful of all the men and, in, and the people in his dad's house, he does it at night. <laughs> so nobody sees him. I think that's funny too. But at least he does it, right? So the next morning, all the men get up and they see the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it cut down and the bull being offered on the altar which Gideon had built. And they say to one another, who has done this thing? Verse 29. And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city says to Joash, bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. Now, what the dad says... I think is so awesome. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? So here are all these people of God coming and saying, put it back up. You know what I mean? And we should kill the guy who took it down because now we're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in trouble? No, he just set you free. You know, so he says, would you plead for Baal? And then he goes on and he said, if he is a God, let him plead for himself. Yeah, that's my kind of guy. That's my kind of guy. Like just shoot through the nonsense. If this Baal is a God, then let him speak for himself. What are you doing here? If he, I mean, if he can kill Gideon, let him do it. Right? We're talking about gods here. So that day they give Gideon a nickname and they start calling him Jerobail, which means let Baal plead for himself, which I just think is hilarious. Well, in verse 34, it then says, but the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew the trumpet and people and men started gathering to him. So he gathers all these men and he gathers. um, If you turn to Judges 7, 3, you find out that he gathers 32,000 men. Okay. Well, the story goes on and God says, this is too many men from for everyone to know it's me now side note 32,000 are going up against 135,000 that doesn't sound like too many to me but according to God it was too many it still was too many because he wants them to know he's their God right that's how he started all of this I am your God I deliver you right so he says this and so 32,000 is too many, so God says, anybody who's afraid, you have my blessings, go home. 22,000 people leave. In one foul swoop, 22,000 of you just left, just got up and walked out of church. You know what I'm saying? It's like, we're going up against the government or whatever, and 22,000 of you said, no, I don't want them to pick on me. I'd like to go home, please. Surely we can sort of relate, right? But 22,000 of the 32,000? Wow. So now we're down to 10,000 against 135,000. And God says, still too many. What? So he does this other thing, and now Gideon's down to 300 men. 300 men are going up to, against 135,000. Now, if you're like me, you, did, you got your phone out and you just divided it up. That's 450 men per person that you have to kill. I I mean, you're going to need the strength of the Lord to even, like, get a sword through 450. Right? I mean, 450. Okay. Moving on. So we'll pick the story up in Judges 7, 
Um, verse 9. So God is, is, it happened on the same night that he, you know, the people, that there's 300 left. The Lord says to Gideon, arise, go down against the camp for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, then go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hands shall be strengthened, meaning you shall be encouraged to go down against them. So he does. He's, so obviously, Gideon admits he's afraid. He goes down to the camp with his servant to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. Now, the Midians, Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. Like, you couldn't even count them. When Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. So here we have God, dream and interpretation that's supposed to encourage Gideon, and it works, right? So it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped, finally, right? Someone worships God. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. So the end of the story is 300 people defeat 135,000. It's amazing, amazing story. So... Why did one story, why did the feeding of the 5,000 lead me to Gideon? Because in both stories, there was barley loaves. And only the Holy Spirit can remind you of something like that. You know what I mean? So we have two stories of barley loaves. Well, let me tell you about barley. Barley at this time was considered an inferior grain. It was used by the poor. Most everyone else was eating wheat or something like that. Barley was considered inferior, right? And so we see disciples. They see these barley loaves. What's their first response? What are they among so many? That's insufficient. Those loaves are insufficient, right? That's what they say. What is Gideon, when the God comes to Gideon, the barley loaf that tumbles in the camp, what does Gideon say about himself? I'm the weakest and the least. What does that mean? I'm insufficient. I'm insufficient. But the great news about both of these stories is that something that seemingly is insufficient, too little, not enough, even his army was insufficient. Who would ever think that 300 men could beat 135,000? So what's the moral of the story? Whatever you put into God's hand is sufficient. It doesn't matter if it's a thing or a person. With God, all things are possible. Matthew 19, 26. Right? That's the moral of the story. In God's hands, with God, we can accomplish the seemingly impossible. You are never insufficient. I think some of the problems sometimes is that we continuously look at ourselves, right? In both these situations, they looked in the natural at what was there. They didn't look at their supernatural God. They didn't look into heaven, right? 
They forgot the God who can do things that are extraordinary, right? They just looked at what they had and they looked at what they needed and they looked at what they had and they looked at what they needed in the natural and found it completely insufficient. And the funny thing is, in ourselves, we are completely insufficient. <laughs> we are nothing. Drew was talking to me the other day, and he's just laughing on the phone. He's like, Mom, we are, and you know, I'm, I'm talk, talking to him about some of this because it's been a few weeks that I've been studying this, and he's telling me about he's studying, and you know, we just have a good time on the phone. And he says to me, Mom, the Bible says we can't even pray as we ought without him. I was like, so true, Drew. It's hilarious. Romans says, we, without the Holy Spirit, we can't even pray as we ought. Amen. Guys, we are so stupid without him. We are so nothing. You know what I'm saying? Without him. We are insufficient without him. But the great news is with him, we are more than enough. More than enough. You know, Ephesians tells us that our faith isn't even ours. It was a gift from God. I mean, we have nothing in ourselves to boast about. Nothing. So why are we even looking at ourselves? Like, why don't we just go ahead and admit it? I mean, if we would just admit it to ourselves and everybody else, wouldn't that be so much easier? Because then you can just trust in God. You know, isn't that what Paul was talking about? Let's, let's turn to... Um, let's turn to... <laughs> Second Corinthians. Um, can you put that in the Passion Translation, Becky? 2 Corinthians 3, 5. <laughs> and we'll do 5 and 6. Look at this. Yet we don't, this is Paul talking, yet we don't see ourselves as capable enough to do anything in our own strength. Hallelujah. We are not capable in ourselves in our own strength for anything. For our true competence flows from God's empowering presence. Isn't that the truth? So we can just go ahead and admit it, right? That, I mean, I am totally not competent. I am only competent with God's presence in me. I only know what to do because I've read his word. And it teaches me what to do, what to say. Isn't that what Jesus said too? I can do nothing of myself. I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what I hear the Father say. Even Jesus said it. So what makes us think we could be anything different than that? We are so completely dependent on him. So stop looking to ourselves. Stop looking at your shortcomings or what you don't have or don't know. If God's going to use you, you know enough. Whatever you know will be enough. Verse 6. He alone makes us adequate ministers. He alone makes us adequate ministers. There's nothing in me that makes me an adequate minister except for him in me. The word in me, the Holy Spirit in me. That's what makes me adequate. Nothing of myself. Let's look at um, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 in the Passion Translation. But you'll love it in your New King James too if that's what you're reading from. God answers, this is Paul talking, and he is God. God answered me and said, my grace is always more than enough for you. And my power finds its full expression through your weakness. Look, if we're trying to do it in our human ability, then we are not accessing 
supernatural. And so God is saying, my grace is more than enough for you. My power finds its full expression. Like if you want the fullness of God, my power finds its full expression through your weakness. When you actually say, I can't do this. When we actually say, yeah, yeah, this isn't in me to do. On my own, I can't be a perfect spouse. It's not in me. I can try as hard as I want. I will never be a perfect spouse. I can't be a perfect parent in human ability. The only thing that can make me a perfect spouse or a perfect parent is that right there. His grace will be enough for me and my faith in that grace, that it will be enough for me. His power will find full expression for you as a parent, for you as a spouse, for you as a boss, for you as an employee, on and on and on. Go to the next verse. So I will celebrate my weaknesses. Sorry. So I'm not defeated by my weakness. Hallelujah. Can you say hallelujah? You are not defeated by your weakness. Celebrate your weakness because it's in your weakness that you can turn to God and God can make his full power available to you. So I'm not defeated by my weakness, but delighted for when I feel my weakness and endure mistreatment, when I'm surrounded with troubles on every side and face persecution, because of my love for Christ, I am made yet stronger. For my weakness becomes a portal to God's power. So when Gideon realized he wasn't enough, but here's this angel saying, mighty man of valor, and God says, go forth, I will be with you. That's all he needed, right? It's like Moses, don't send us out if your presence doesn't go with us because, you know, how will we win or how will they know that you are God if you are not with us? You know, all those things. God never meant for us to do this on our own. As humans, it's impossible. If we go back to that statement from Matthew 19, 26, it says, with men, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. And what he's talking about there is entering the kingdom of heaven, entering the kingdom of God. I don't want to get probably too far down this road because I'm going to be with you again at the end of this month, and I think we're going to develop this further. But when the, everything changed... When John and Jesus, because they both preached it, came preaching, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near you. It was, it was, he, they would say, repent, remember? Repent, for the kingdom has drawn near you. What does repent mean? Change the way you think. You're going to have to change the way you think. Why? Because the kingdom has drawn near you. That, which was good news, Right? But we know verses like Zechariah 4, 6. It's not by might nor by power. It's not by human might, not by human power, but by the, but by the Spirit, right? That things are accomplished. Like Gideon, he wouldn't have accomplished anything, but the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And that's what made him able. When his grace comes upon us, it makes us sufficient. It makes us sufficient. Philippians 4, 13. Let's look at this in the Amplified It says, I have strength for all things in Christ who empowers me. I am ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses inner strength into me 
I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. I have strength for all things in Christ. I'm ready for anything and equal to anything. That means nothing that comes your way with God, are you insufficient? Stick with God. Don't get in the flesh. Stick with God. And you'll be sufficient for everything that comes your way. You'll be able to handle it just like Jesus did. No matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's somebody who doesn't want to pay you at work. You know, like you just did a job. They don't want to pay you, whatever. It's your money's not coming in. You are sufficient. With God, you are sufficient to handle that. The Bible says, you know, people who are around me a lot hear me say this. Don't tell me you don't know. Because that's not biblical. The Bible says you know all things. So change your confession. You know all things. I mean, I tell myself too. I catch myself saying it. I just don't know. No, I do know. I know all things. Because it starts with your words. Even God's creative power started with words. So if you need a solution, start with those words. I know all things. Even if you don't know. Go ahead and say it. That's the word of God. That's the truth. Is yes, you do know all things. So it'll rise up within you. Trust it, right? It's the spirit of the Lord. So what makes a fisherman sufficient? Talking about the disciples. What makes a fisherman sufficient? What makes a tax collector sufficient? To do miracles. What makes a Pharisee of Pharisees sufficient? Or let's call him what he was, a murderer. What makes a murderer sufficient? Only one thing. God. God makes us sufficient. And if he can make a murderer sufficient, because that's who he was talking to, my grace is sufficient for you. He was talking to an ex-murderer right there. You telling me you're worse than that? No way. No way. So there's not one of us in this room that's lacking. That's a lie from the pit of hell. If you are born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, you are not lacking. You are not insufficient. You know, that was the lie that's still being perpetuated from the garden. The devil came to Adam and Eve and said, well, God knows if you eat it, you'll be like God. They were already like God. It's the same lie today. You have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in you. The Bible says the kingdom is in you. It says you have an anointing in you. It says there's a gift in you. It's all in you. You're not lacking anything. Nothing. There's nothing you're waiting for. You are sufficient in him for anything that comes your way. Just like the loaves were and just like Gideon was. It doesn't matter if you're poor, inferior, or looks like you're insufficient. The Bible says that doesn't matter. With God, just like the five loaves became sufficient. Just like Gideon and 300 men 
with God became sufficient. In fact, more than enough. In the story of the loaves, more than enough. More than enough. They collected 12 baskets of leftovers. Those four, five insignificant barley loaves were more than enough. You and four friends, more than enough. More than enough. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 1. I just like when the Bible tells us that we're, you know, good enough. Don't you like that when the Bible tells you you're good enough? (laughs) I do too. All right. So God, let me say this in the Passion Translation too, Becky. 1 Corinthians 1.21. And your new King James verse 21 says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. So the world's own wisdom, in their own wisdom, they couldn't even know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So in the Passion Translation, it says, For in his wisdom, God designed, designed it this way, that all the world's wisdom would be insufficient. So guess who's insufficient? The world and their ways. Their ways will always be insufficient for you. Hear me. Their ways will never be good enough. Will never be enough. Never be more than enough. Their ways are insufficient to lead people to the discovery of himself. He took great delight in baffling the wisdom of the world by using the simplicity of preaching the story of the cross in order to save those who believe it. See, what's foolishness with God Right? What's foolishness to the world is wisdom with God. Because God can put his hand on it. God can anoint it. Have you ever heard a talented person sing and you're just like, wow, that is talent. And then somebody anointed gets up and sings and you're crying? Talent alone can't do that. Only God can do that. That's called anointing. That's called the hand of God. The touch of God. What seems foolish to the world, God delights in. So you go on and you look at verses, let's look at verse 26 in the Passion Translation. So that's 1 Corinthians 1, 26. I know we all love these verses too. Brothers and sisters, consider who you were when God called you to salvation. So think back who you were. Not many of you were wise scholars by human standards. Nor were many of you in positions of power. Not many of you were considered the elite when you answered God's call. Keep going. But God chose those whom the world considers foolish to shame those who think they are wise. And God chose the puny and powerless to shame the high and mighty. He chose the lowly, the laughable in the world's eyes, the nobodies, so that he would shame the somebodies. I remember one time God telling me that, you know, I think one time he told me when I, I think I preached it too, that um, he would take the nobodies to the somebodies. He'll take the nobodies to the somebodies, if you'll let him. For he chose what is regarded as insignificant 
in order to supersede what is regarded as prominent. Keep going. Is that it? No. So that there would be no place for prideful boasting in God's presence. Again, we're back to the Midian, or we're back to, you know, the Midianites. Nobody's going to get God's credit. He's God. I'm your God. So their gods aren't your gods. What they can do for you isn't your God. It's not even where you should turn. But you know who else isn't your God? You. (laughs) Me. I am insufficient to solve all my problems. I can think about it and think about it and think about it and think about it and roll it over in my mind and roll it over in my mind and for weeks and weeks think about it and try to figure it out and try this and try that and try this and try that and guess what? It's going to be insufficient. Until I inquire of the Lord, humble myself and inquire of the Lord, then I can find a solution that will be sufficient and more than enough. Amen. In every situation, you with God are sufficient. It doesn't matter how it looks. You are sufficient. Don't ever believe the lie that you're not, and don't ever get your eyes on you. Keep your eyes on God, keep your eyes on Jesus. Let's turn to Matthew 14. While you're doing that, I'm going to turn to Mark. I'm going to read. Let me look. I'm going to read this from Mark, and then we'll turn and read from Matthew. Immediately, so this is right after the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark. So it's in Mark chapter 6. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And we had, when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it's I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves, beyond measure, and marveled. And then it says this. For they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. Get that. He says it's him. He gets in the boat. The wind stops. And it says this of the disciples. They were greatly amazed in themselves. Beyond measure. And marveled. Like it would have been sufficient to me if they just said they were greatly amazed. But instead the Bible has to tell us three different things. They were greatly amazed in themselves. Beyond measure. And marveled. So I'd say that they were like in disbelief. Like... Yeah, the the Bible has to tell us three times what their emotions were in this moment. Like, that's a little bit of overkill, you would think, right? But apparently they were so amazed. They marveled. Beyond measure. Why? 
because they did not understand about the loaves. What did they not understand about the loaves? That Jesus was sufficient. They hadn't taken what had happened to the loaves and applied it to their own situation. How many of us can say we've done the same thing? If God can take five barley loaves and feed 5,000 people with 12 baskets left over, what can possibly be insufficient in your life if you know that God? If that God is your God? So we can't allow our hearts to be hardened to this, to what we're reading, to the report about our God. We've got to keep it before us that this is my God. This is my God. When we sing songs like Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Jireh, that's my God. That's my God. That's my God. That Jesus, he's my Jesus, my Savior, my Deliverer. His stripes, my healing. We have to be able to apply it to ourselves and not let our hearts get hard. All right, let's turn to Matthew. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Hold on a second. I want to look something up. Okay. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me, to, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. All right, the reason I bring up this story is because in the last month or two, this story has um, come up numerous times for me in conversations with other people. And what's amazing to me is whenever I, br- whenever I bring this story up, because let's face it, guys, if we're going to higher levels, promotion and progression, how many would say walking on water is a progression? Okay, good. So we're on the same page, right? So we want to get to this. Right? So, when you think about this story, there were 11 other disciples who did not get out of the boat. So I say to myself and others, why did they not get out of the boat? Don't answer. Why did they not get out of the boat? And to my utter amazement, every time I ask this question, I get a different answer. Because I would think everybody thinks like me. Like, there's an obvious answer. But what I have found is the answer that you give to that question is why you're not getting out of the boat. 
And each one of us has a different answer. Some of them might be the same. So what do we do with that? Because we're going to have to get outside our comfort zone. The boat was a comfort zone. So what keeps you from getting out of your comfort zone? So you can take that question, what keeps you from getting out of your comfort zone, to why did they not get out of the boat? Some of the answers I've given, I've been given, is, well, they were afraid they'd fail. Which really means, I'm afraid I'd fail. But let me remind you, you can't walk on water. You will most definitely fail. Right? So you have to, you have to take, you have to analyze the answer that you're giving. Whatever answer is in your head, you have to think it through. That's why the Bible says meditate. Because if I just always think, I, I stay in my comfort zone because I don't want to fail, and I never think, I can't walk on water anyway. So I guess what I'm really saying is that God will fail me. And I have to confront myself with that. Okay, do I really believe that? No, I do not believe that. Okay, so then I just eradicated a fear. Do you see what I'm saying? If you can pinpoint what it is you're really saying, and then find out, do you really believe that? Or is it a smokescreen that you don't really believe, but it's hindering you from getting out of your comfort zone? But if you really believe in God, then you can move on. This is going to cause you to progress and advance. Amen. Other answers I've gotten is, well, they might not have trusted the nature of Jesus, Jesus' character. They might not have trusted Jesus' character. Which really means, I probably don't trust Jesus' character. So you have to confront yourself. Is that true? I really don't trust Jesus' character? Like, I think he says, come, but he's going to let me just sink? So I think he's, what, going to make a fool of me? Now, do I believe that? And if I do, then I have to, like, you know. But if I really don't, but yet it's been this thing in my way, now I can confront that and move forward. Another answer I've gotten is, well, I mean, it was, it was just for Peter. It wasn't really for the other disciples. Really? Why? Because Peter was maybe the oldest one? Where is that in scripture? It's not there. So see, you have to confront what it is you're thinking. Why won't I get out of my comfort zone? Why am I afraid to step outside my comfort zone? You know, as we head into having 6,000 conversations this year, it's going to take you exiting your comfort zone. So you have to confront this question because this is what God is asking us to do as a church. And I don't know about you, but I'd love to sow 6,000 seeds of the word of God and what, who our God is in our community. Even if they don't all result in 6,000 salvations, but Lord, we'll take 6,000 salvations in this community. Isn't the thought that we can have 6,000 winning conversations exciting? Yeah. If we will just step out of our comfort zones? Yeah. 
What can God do with that? Because all he needs for us is to plant a seed. Take a step. Now, Peter stepped out of the boat and started walking to Jesus. And then he started sinking. Why? The Bible tells us why. He looked at the storm around him. So let me remind you what Dr. Chevelle is telling us about progression in 2024. He said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you let go of your faith? What does Dr. Spell say? Stay in faith. Stay in faith. Stay in faith. Everything you can do to stay in faith. No matter what comes your way, stay in faith. You and he are not insufficient. You're going to win. Stay in faith. Keep going. Keep moving forward. Stay in faith. Do not doubt. Do not doubt your God. Do not doubt that you're going to get through this. Do not doubt. Do not even leave any room for it. Do not doubt. Remain in faith. Then what does he say? Stay focused on the promises. What did Jesus say? Come. If Jesus says come, he's more than able to keep you above the waves. Even if the waves turn into hurricane. If God said come, stay focused on the promises. Stay focused on what he said. Stay in faith. Remain focused on the promises. And last one, say it with me. Do not get distracted. Do not get distracted by this crazy world around you. Because if you don't, you'll keep walking on water. You will keep progressing. Stay in faith. Remain focused on the promises. Do not get distracted. Do not get distracted, you bunch of barley loaves. Yes! Just go ahead and abandon yourselves. It's not in you anyway. Put yourself entirely in God's hand. That's the best place to be. And you will always be sufficient. And you will progress. And you will do miraculous things. Miraculous things. I'm going to steal a phrase from my friend Bill Horn, who talked to the young adults few weeks ago. You guys, this is, this is God's grand plan. His grand plan. Like, there's only one plan. No plan B. This is it. The grand plan. Do you want to know what it is? Jesus and G's. Us? Yeah. Jesus and G's. Us! Yeah, that's the grand plan. He sent Jesus, and now it's Jesus. It's us, guys. We're the grand plan. We are the grand plan. Jesus said you would go and do the same works I did. That's why Peter got out of the boat. Don't we at least want to get to the point, like, you might think the other disciples didn't even think to ask. Why? They weren't even ready to think that they could do supernatural things. But Peter was, and he just looked, he, Jesus didn't say, Peter, come on out. No, Peter asked to walk on water. What if it's as simple as you asking to do miracles, asking for someone to come across your path? See, our faith has to get beyond, give me, give me, give me. And our faith has to become, put me in a situation for someone else. 
Take me somewhere where you can flow through me and touch a life, change a life. Find, what if, you know, it says of Jesus, it says of Jesus, they couldn't take him out before it was his time. Right? Because, you know, God was like, no, it's, it's not, he, they couldn't take him out before it was his time. So, let's say you're in a restaurant and you have reservations at 1230. And it's 1235 and they still don't have you seated at your table. What do you suppose those extra minutes were given to you for? Maybe instead of using our faith to think, get me to my table, why don't you take a second and think, if they couldn't take Jesus out until his time, maybe this time has been given to me for something. And look around you and find that one person. That's standing there too. That maybe God wants you to talk to. For number 3,263, winning conversation this year. So our faith has to be, we have to get to the place where we can actually believe that God will sit someone down next to us for us to help. How about we use our faith for that? To be just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. Because he's waiting on us to do the works that he did. And we're not lacking anything to do that. We are not insufficient. We are completely sufficient in him. The, whole, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is in us. Same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Same Holy Spirit that went on him and then he went out preaching and healing. So, I just want to pray. To end the service tonight, I just want to pray over any of you that have felt insufficient. If you've had those feelings that I just don't feel sufficient for this. Not enough. I don't feel like I'm enough. You know? Tonight that ends. But first, we have to do the first works, which is repent. Because we have to change the way we think. Change the way we're seeing ourselves. We have to ask God to forgive us for looking to myself instead of to him. Because whenever I think I'm insufficient, I'm looking at myself and not at him. Does that make sense? So I have to ask him to forgive me. That's pride. I'm trying to figure it out myself without him. And that was never the plan. You know what I mean? So let's pray. Father, we've all felt like this before. That's why we have the story of the disciples, Lord. They felt it too. But Father, you've done everything you can do to make us sufficient to make us who we are, to make us fishers of men, (laughs) to make us miracle workers, tongue talkers, demon caster outers. (laughs) Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for grace that's sufficient for us. And Father, right now, 
Father, forgive me for looking at myself without you and expecting it to be enough. And Holy Spirit, help me. Father, I repent. I want to change the way I think about these things. And I want to put all my trust and dependence on you that with you, I am enough. I know enough. I will say enough. I will have the right words. I will have the power working in me that's sufficient for what's in front of me, that is sufficient for those around me that need me walking in the power. Father, I thank you for your grace on each and every one in here. Holy Spirit, give us revelation of that grace that's more than enough, that empowerment that comes on us and is already in us. (laughs) Father, thank you for the glory that you want to accomplish through the church. So, Father, we just give you us. Here we are. Use us. And as we go out of here tonight and throughout the week, I thank you, Holy Spirit, you will be faithful to remind us that these barley loaves, (laughs) no matter if we feel inferior, insufficient, not enough, with you, we are more than enough. Remind us, Lord. And Father, in the name of Jesus, I take authority over any fear and all fear that would try to hinder us. That spirit is not from you, and we cast it down and we cast it out, Father, in the name of Jesus, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And I thank you, Lord, for the spirit that's been given to us, a spirit of love, we are capable of love. Of power, we are capable of power. And a sound mind, spirit of a sound mind. Father, thank you that we think like you and see like you. And we hear your voice and know your voice. And we are quick to obey so that, Father, you can do what you want to do. Not only in our lives, but in others' lives. That you may get the glory (laughs) through these barley loaves. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Is anybody else assigned to announcements tonight? No? But y'all know. If um, the ushers are always at the back door if you want to give. So I just encourage you. you. I think it was Eric who said this grace of giving. He wants to make you sufficient in it as well. I love that verse. I wish I would have read it. Read it. Becky, can you put up one more verse for me? Can you put up 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8? We'll leave on this one. Are you ready? This is going to be a good one. Can you put it in the Passion Translation? Yes, God is more than ready to overwhelm you with every form of grace so that you will have more than enough of everything, every moment and in every way. He will make you overflow with abundance in every good thing you do, right? He's more than ready to overwhelm you with every form of grace. He's just waiting on you. So no matter what good thing you go out of here this week to do, 
He is so ready. He's waiting. And he will overwhelm you with the grace it takes to be more than enough for that good thing. Amen? Amen. Amen.